0: For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you can imagine for a second that it's uh, it's the night before your, your day off, let's say it's Friday night, that's most of us, and you're sitting down on the couch, with your favorite snack, and uh, your best friends with you, uh, maybe your spouse was with you, and you're, um, you're about to push play on a movie that you've been waiting forever to see, your favorite actor or actress, and uh, you're just about to push play, and somebody runs in the room and says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't worry about anything. I say, well, that's weird. I wasn't. (laughs) I wasn't worried about anything. If you didn't know, do not fear. Do not be afraid is arguably the most repeated command in scripture. I say arguably because sometimes it's phrased where a command is implied. Um, And so like praise the Lord or different forms of that phrase might, might be a little bit more common, but Do not fear is right up there, top two. Most repeated commands in the entire Bible, and it only makes sense. Don't be afraid if you're in a flood, if you're drowning, or if you're in the fire, or if you're in bondage. And this passage is about all three. Being in a flood, being in fire, Being a hostage. And the command, do not fear, is there twice. Verse 2. Excuse me, verse 1. And verse 5. Let me read verse 2. This is the fire, the flood passage. Verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. If you're not familiar with this part of the book of Isaiah, the context for these do not fear commands, the context for the flood, the fires that they're passing through, is the return of Israel from their exile in Babylon. If you didn't know that part of the story, you know, Israel was sent into exile It actually talks about this in the chapter before chapter 43, in 42, chapter 42. We're told Israel was sent into exile and it was their fault. Because they left God's path. They, They basically were worshiping demons. By the end of, we read about the history of it in 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings. And we're offering child sacrifices to these demons. And it got so bad that they were worse than the nations that God drove out of the promised land in the first place. And so arguably to keep them from getting worse, which is the same story in the garden, so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life after they came to the knowledge of sin and evil and be in that position eternally for their own good as well as for their chastisement, God sent them out for their refinement. That's a little bit of the context. That's the story. These are verses about Israel being brought back from exile in Babylon, in exile from the holy presence of God, which they deserved and needed. And this is a redemption story now about God bringing them back. And a few things you need to know about Israel, if this is brand new to you, the scriptures, the story of Israel, etc. Israel was a really insignificant, a relatively insignificant, insignificant group of people based on their size. So like verse 3, for example, it says, I am the Lord of your God. God says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Saba in exchange for you. The point here being that Israel was an insignificant-sized people compared to, say, Egypt. A larger kingdom, at one time an empire that could actually rival, arguably, a Babylon and Assyria. And God's saying, as these empires, these large kingdoms kind of go back and forth and you're caught up in the midst of it, I'm going to grab you and bring you right through the floods and the fires and save you. Again, this is an insignificant nation, also a guilty one. The surprise is not that they landed in a fearful place, a place of bondage. The surprise is that God delivers them out of exile at all. But here's the thing. He actually doesn't deliver them out of the floods and the fires. That's actually the main thing we're going to talk about this morning. God does not deliver Israel out of the floods, out of the fires on their way back home. He delivers them through the floods and the fires on the way back home. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, the Apostle Peter says, you know what the Christian life is like? It is like a piece of gold being refined in a fire to purify it. And there's this stuff that doesn't belong, like this dross. And to get at that glory, human beings do have glory, by the way, according to Psalm 8 you got to kind of knock off the stuff that doesn't belong, that's not original to it, that's not essential to it, that's not beautifying to it. And this is the process of the, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, working out of our salvation. You are justified, you are saved by faith, but then the process of being sanctified is just like that, being saved through a fire, through a refining process to be gold, to be gold, to be more glorious. Two questions, two points this morning. What is God doing in your life, in my life, in Israel's story? What in the world is God up to? Secondly, why is he doing it? Why does it have to be this way? First, What is God doing? Look, I didn't bury the lead. I already got there. God is delivering you through fire and flood to bring you home and beautify you because you belong to Him. God is delivering you through fire. The last few weeks, uh, we were, as I mentioned during the baptisms, we've been in a series on the book of Genesis. We just did Genesis one through five, uh, over the course of a few months. And if you're new here, if you drop in on a Sunday, or if you've been here for, for years, you know we're usually just cranking through a book of the Bible. Uh, during the month of August, though, we're looking at a few passages about the church's mission. And the reason for that is, a lot of things here kind of follow the academic year. We're looking at the fall. Some people who are out of town or back in, some new people that we meet, a lot of ministries kind of hit restart for September. and I think we need a refresher on what exactly the mission of the church is. Yes, it is to share the good news about the love of God in Jesus Christ through word and accompanying good deeds. That is the mission of the church. But there's some important groundwork first. Did you know in the scriptures, There are not people who proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ coming and saving us in a way that a newspaper journalist or editor would tell the story. Like gospel, the word just means good news. Good news about what? About what God has done for the world in the person of Jesus Christ. There is not a person in the scriptures who tells that story like they're writing an article in a newspaper. They tell the story like someone who's been snatched from the fire. They tell the story like somebody who's been brought through a flood. Steve Huber, he's the director of the Liberty Network, was a pastor here for many years, says this, and he didn't I've heard it from him. it's not his line, but he doesn't let me forget it, and it's one of those lines that as soon as you hear it, you absolutely know it's true. "The God you share is the God you experience." That's true. God, we tell if we actually do open our mouths and tell people about God, and you and I don't do it as often as we should or often as we could, but when we do, and it's not because it's part of some program or it's an assignment or because a pastor is like chasing you to do so, but you do it because you want to. The God you're sharing is the God you experience. Uh, When I was at Temple University as a college student, I was a film major and I was taking a bunch of screenwriting classes. And uh, right when I was taking classes on screenwriting, you know, telling stories for the screen, a movie came out, which is my personal favorite movie of all time about screenwriting. It's like a screenwriter said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna make a movie about writing movies, and it's called Adaptation. I don't know if everyone, it's like 20 years old now. But there's this scene where there's this guy who's trying to write a movie. He's really proud, he's had some success, but he's got total writer's block. So he does the thing that he said he'd never do. He goes to like this this guy who just teaches screenwriting for the masses. He does seminars for like 10,000 people who come out and and he's like, I can't believe I'm going to this. Am I really one of these people? And he goes and he's actually captivated by this screenwriting expert. And at the end of the lecture, he stands up and says, listen, um, sir, expert in screenwriting, I hear what you're saying about writing stories and getting to the heart of conflict and resolving conflict, but what if you're, you know, like me, you're somebody, you're somebody who wants to tell a story but just wants to tell it about normal life? Like, you know, stuff, where, stuff doesn't really happen that much. Interesting things don't really happen day to day. There's not really a conflict, you know? It's just like, like you get out, you go out the door, you have dinner, you see a few things, you go to sleep. And this is what the screenwriting expert says in response. He says, the real world, huh? First of all, you write a screenplay without conflict or crisis and you'll bore your audience to tears. It's true. Secondly, nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your mind? I'm leaving out a few descriptive adjectives. There's genocide, war, corruption. Every day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love. People lose it. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays their best friend. If you can't find that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know about life. And why are you wasting my two precious hours on your movie? I love that conversation. It's absolutely true you may feel like your personal redemption story may not make a good film or TV show, but that's TV's problem. The truth is we're just bad at noticing, isn't it? We're bad at noticing the miracle of two children being baptized. We're bad at noticing the unbelievable things that are happening all around us, constantly. Every day. Today, you are standing on uncertain ground. Today, you are facing a scary conversation. Today, you are in need, and maybe you'll ask for help, or maybe you won't. Everyone has a story to tell of God's faithfulness. And the God you experience is the God you share. If you're noticing, what is God doing? He is redeeming us, you and me, through fire and flood and slavery, with a story to tell about it. That's what he's doing. Why is God doing it? That's the second point. And that's verse 4. Verse 4. Why? Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I don't know if that sounds sappy to you. That you are precious, honored, and so loved that he comes for you to save you and restore you. Even though you are relatively, like Israel, relatively insignificant to the world and guilty. He sees you. He loves you. He honors you, though you don't act honorably. You're precious in his eyes. Here's why you need this, if you think it's sappy. Again, when we were looking at the first few chapters of Genesis, we saw humanity almost at its lowest. It actually gets at its lowest in Genesis 11. But it gets almost to its lowest. Chapters 3 through 5 show human beings getting worse and worse and worse. And the point isn't just to say, look at them out there. Look at how bad the world is. Look at how people are so messed up. The point is, like Solzhenitsyn says, you cannot just say to some other people, they're the evil ones. Wouldn't that be so wonderful and simple and awesome if, it was so, if there were such neat boundaries? You could say, all those evil people in the world, the truth is the line between good and evil goes right through every single human being. We are meant to read these chapters and say, look at what we're all caught up in and all a part of. Look at the harm we have done to ourselves and to God and to the world there is an old Orthodox liturgy uh, written by John Chrysostom. He just quotes Paul in 1 Tim- Timothy. Uh, before, uh, to this day, before the Orthodox receive communion, they say this, I believe and confess, Lord, that you are truly the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the first. They say this every week before they receive communion. How can you say such a thing? How can you say to yourself and to others in gathered worship, no one is worse than me, and not lose yourself in a hole of shame? How is that possible? It's possible because it's not the only thing that's true of you. What else is true? Another thing that's eternally true of you, if you're a child of God, is this. You are precious. You're honored and you are loved. You actually, I would argue, and I, I, I would love to argue this with you if you disagree with me, you need to have a solid understanding of your preciousness before God in order to explore the true depths of your sin without going insane. It is the rope that holds you up over the abyss. You actually need to know that actually, my therapist friend of mine, named Stephen Muse, likes to say, uh, when you're counseling people, and by that just, if you're talking to a friend who's discouraged, professionally or not, you have to become a somebody before you become a nobody. Before you dive into just how bad things are within you, you have to know how beloved you are. It's how it works. You are the chief sinner. And at the same time, you're loved so much that your worth can't be measured by the stars. We actually need both. The mission of God requires that we have both. We need God to refine us through fire and flood to understand, no. To live, that both are totally true. I'm the chief sinner, and I'm more precious than I'll ever ever fathom, way into eternity. I am chief sinner, eternally beloved of God. Jesus says, "Do you know how you really know God?" I'm, a par- I'm paraphrasing now. Actually. Many in the monastic tradition have put it just this way. They're paraphrasing Jesus in Matthew 5. You know God to the extent that you love your enemies. And how do you love your enemies? By knowing that you are one, an enemy of God. And as Hannah read today, in the words of assurance, when we were sinners, Christ loved us, not when we were good. Love for Enemies is the thing that this city needs. If we want to talk about our mission, I just want to end by talking to, you about, talking to you about how little we love our enemies and how tied that is, how tied up that is with the love of God for us. You cannot offer it unless you have it. You can't offer love for an enemy unless you have this love. If we were to hold on to both of these truths, I'm the chief sinner and I'm beloved of God, how bright would our light shine in this city? Knowing experientially that we are not superior to even one soul in this city. And at the same time, be assured that God will never abandon or discard us, even though It costs the life of Christ to redeem us. By the way, in verse 4, where it goes on to say, You're honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Jesus Christ is the man that fulfills this passage. He is the one who was given in exchange for all of you and for me. How precious we must be to him. Can we even imagine You've got enemies in the city, folks. Uh, there are too many selfish people in the city. There's too many loud people in the city. There's too many racists in the city. There's too many violent people in the city. There's too many gluttonous, too many greedy, too many apathetic. Can you believe, in the midst of all that, I am chief sinner? Is this not the way? Is this not the only way, letting this truth go all the way down and find, finding out that we're beloved nonetheless? Enemy of God though we are, we're loved. Who are we offering it to? If you do this, the opportunity to share the news of the Savior will come because it's strange, it's absent. Jesus says he has sheep in other folds that aren't part of his one flock yet. If they were, he would have come back by now. Verse 7 at the end of this passage says, His heart is for everyone called by his name, whom he created for his glory, whom he formed and made. At least some of those people are your enemies. And in my life, just get testimonial for a second the enemies that God has put in my life and in my household have been the greatest experience of God's love for me, refinement for me. Why? Because I find out just how impossible love really is. And many of you are far better at it than I am. I bring you this passage about redeeming love today. Only one about the mission of the church during the month of August because I think it's one that we need as we're thinking about the mission of the church. Ultimately, we cannot really open our mouths and speak the words explaining the gospel or really do a few good deeds and speak the name of Jesus and really help people if we don't love them. And they are not lovable. Unless Unless we impossibly, by the strength of God, find out how God feels about them. To be on the mission of God is to share the heart that God has for others as well as us. If we do not love our neighbors, we cannot help them. If we do not find them precious, we cannot help them. We cannot speak. We can speak. We can donate. We can post online. We can vote. We can create entire nonprofit organizations. But we are not speaking his language, and we're certainly not speaking in his name until we love our enemy. Who is it? It's us. We're enemies to him. It just turns out by his grace. That were also his beloved children. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.